I can still remember my first days of nursing school in my former life as a nurse, getting a stethoscope, putting the bell of that stethoscope up to somebody's heart and hearing that heart beat with my own ears. It's amazing to hear somebody else's heart pounding. Well, there's a very real sense as we come to John chapter 17. It's almost as if the Apostle John puts the stethoscope in our ears and the Lord Jesus takes the the bell of that stethoscope and puts it up to his heart and allows us to hear the heartbeat of the Lord Jesus himself. It is often someone's prayers, the the cries of their heart that reveal to us something of who they are, what they desire, what their ambitions are in life, what are their heart cravings. Well, Jesus allows us to hear his heart in this amazing prayer that John records for us in John chapter 17. And I must confess to you that It's always with fear and trepidation that I preach the Word of God. I try to take the posture of the Apostle Paul who says, I came to you with weakness and fear and much trembling. But some passages provoke more fear and more trembling than others. And this certainly is one of them. Listen to what some people have said about this passage. Martin Luther, the great German reformer, said... This is truly beyond measure a warm and hearty prayer. He opens the depths of his heart, both in reference to us and to his Father. He pours them all out. It sounds so honest, so simple. It is so deep, so rich, so wide. No one can fathom it. Another reformer, Luther's protege, Philip Melanchthon, giving his last lecture before his death, he said this of John 17. There is no voice which has ever been heard either in heaven or on earth more exalted, more holy, more fruitful, more sublime than the prayer offered by the Son of God himself. John Brown said the 17th chapter of the Gospel of John is without doubt the most remarkable portion of the most remarkable book in the world. Sovereign Grace Chapel, take your shoes off because we are on holy ground. This, the context of John 17 is at the end of Jesus' instruction that he's giving on the evening before his execution. The next morning he will be apprehended, arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane, and he will die on that Roman cross. But these are his final instructions that he gives to his disciples. One of those disciples has departed from them, Judas, to betray Jesus, The eleven are left there 
And Jesus has given this lengthy instruction that goes all the way from chapter 13 where Jesus is washing the feet of his disciples all the way to this glorious prayer in chapter 17. And in the wisdom of God, God's purpose was for the Apostle John to record this prayer so that we would understand something of the heartbeat and mission of the Lord Jesus Christ. This prayer is 26 verses long as we find it in our English text. You could break this prayer down into three different parts. The first five verses, Jesus is praying for himself. Verses 6 through 19, Jesus will pray directly for the apostles, those 11 who are still with him. And then the remaining verses in verses 20 through 26, in a very shocking way, Jesus prays for those who would believe through the message of the apostles, which includes you and me, namely the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, even unto this day. It is a glorious and rich prayer where Jesus is praying to the Father. And we see in this opening section, as Jesus prays for himself, Jesus' consuming passion and heart cry and requests are related to God's glory. And in this, we're going to see five ways in which Jesus glorifies God so that we would align our hearts with the glory of God, so that the compass that points north in our life would point to God's honor and glory. And friends, this is very important for us, especially in our very narcissistic culture. In an age of selfies and social media that's all about the unholy trinity of me, myself, and I, we need the antidote of seeing that all of, a, all of life, all of salvation, both creation and redemption is to point to the honor and glory of the triune God. This was Jesus' heartbeat. And it should be your heartbeat as well. So let us see the first way in which Jesus is going to glorify the Father. Verse 1, it says, Jesus spoke these things, lifting up his eyes to heaven. He said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. Jesus, notice it says, spoke these things. I mentioned this already, but it's worth repeating. Jesus prays out loud. He prays out loud, and the Holy Spirit evidently years later reminds the Apostle John of this prayer so that John records this for us. God wants us to hear this prayer, this most intimate prayer. And then Jesus lifts up his eyes to heaven, and you can almost just envision the Savior 
there before the eleven, lifting up his eyes to heaven and beginning to talk to the Father. Now, what's fascinating here is that there are a handful of occasions in the Gospels that tell us that Jesus went off to the mountains to pray throughout the night. Uh, There's a couple very short prayers that are recorded in the Gospel of John, but never do we find such a lengthy and robust prayer recorded in the Scripture, save this chapter, John 17. It is the only place where you will get a large, lengthy prayer of Jesus. Jesus says to the Father, and notice he addresses him as Father. There's this inter-Trinitarian relationship taking place here. What's so fascinating about this is you see clearly the Lord Jesus subjecting himself to the Father, calling him Father. There's a distinction of persons, but also there's clearly a, a kind of equality of essence because it's Jesus' glory that is the Father's glory in this, this mutual reflection that takes place. And both of them are harmoniously and gloriously on the same mission for the glory of God. He addresses Him as Father and one occasion in this prayer, he calls him righteous father. On another occasion, he calls him holy father. But he repeatedly calls him father. And this, by the way, is fairly unique in the New Testament. There's maybe, uh, I think, 13 references to God as father in the Old Testament. There's at least six references that Jesus addresses God as father just in this chapter. It's not that God wasn't Father in the Old Testament, but it's just that we we catch a glimpse, a, a more fuller glimpse in the New Testament of this relationship that we can have to the Father through Jesus being the eternal Son. And then Jesus says to the Father, the hour has come. The hour has come. Now, this isn't anything new in the Gospel of John. If you are a student of the Gospel of John, the, the repetition of the phrase of the hour is repeated throughout the Gospel of John. And often the ancient writers want to tip us, on, tip us off on a major theme through repetition. And so let, let me remind you of some of these instances in the Gospel of John where it mentions this hour. Remember at the wedding at Cana of Galilee when Jesus' mother evidently wanted Jesus to do something spectacular and Jesus says to his mother, woman, what does that have to do with us? My hour has not yet come. And it seems to be referring to the, the hour of, Jesus, uh, of the public display of God's glory has not yet come, Mary. Hold your horses, Mary. In John 7, verse 6, Jesus' brothers seem to be mocking Jesus. They go, go up to the Feast of Tabernacles and do some of those magic tricks that you do and, and, and make yourself great and show, show off some of those things that you can do at the, at the Feast of Tabernacles. And Jesus says to His brothers, in John 7, 6, my time is not yet here. Your time is always opportune. 
In John chapter 7, verse 30, it says, At that feast they were seeking to seize him, but no man laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. And so as the Gospel of John unfolds, this hour is the hour of Jesus' glory. But then it starts becoming more clear that the hour is somehow related to him dying at the right time. We see this again in chapter 8 and verse 20 when it says these words Jesus spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple and no one seized him because his hour had not yet come. And then on the brink of Jesus' death, just before this upper room discourse, in John twelve twenty three, Jesus answered them and said, The hour for the Son of Man to be glorified has come. Verse 27, Now my soul has become troubled. What shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this very purpose, I came for this hour. And so now it's becoming crystal clear as the Gospel of John unfolds that the Watch of Jesus has the alarm sounding for the hour of His execution. That's what He's talking about. The hour has come. And and friends, think about this. On the divine calendar, the divine watch, this is an hour that has been planned from eternity past, was promised even just outside the Garden of Eden when God said that the seed of the woman would crush the seed of the serpent's head. It's found in the Abrahamic promise of a a seed of Abraham. It's found in the pictures and shadows and types of the exodus and, and the kingship and the priesthood and the sacrifices of the Old Testament. And all of it culminates here. And it's a spectacular hour. We understand this to some degree, you know. Maybe you have some kind of New Year's Eve tradition where you're awaiting for that hour where the clock strikes 12 and you usher in a new year. Or maybe there's some other kind of event. Maybe, you know, it's a... Those of you who can remember the days when you played football, you know, the, the time in which the game starts and there's those hours leading up to it and the butterflies in your stomach or maybe it's some kind of a, a other athletic performance or competition or something of that sort. There's this anticipation that leads up to the hour. Well, Jesus is talking about that here, but it's the hour of His crucifixion. It's the hour of His death. All of human history is culminating in this hour. Notice notice the language Jesus says here. Father, glorify Your Son that Your Son may glorify You. This This is the first way in which Jesus glorifies the Father. It's through reflecting the Father's glory. Reflecting the Father's glory particularly at the cross. Now, it's, it's difficult for us to appreciate this because, you know, most of us here are Christians, right? The cross is our glory, right? 
we, we, we love the sentiment of the Apostle Paul in Galatians 6, uh, 6.14 where he says, Forbid it not that I should boast, save in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, of whom the world was crucified unto me and I unto the world. We, we boast in the cross. We love the cross. The cross is the glory. But there's a, a kind of a shocking contradiction here. Because the cross was horribly shameful. I mean, to die through public execution. I mean, you know, sometimes we, we watch movies or we hear stories of people who die in acts of heroism uh, triumphantly. But we wouldn't normally think dying under a capital punishment, dying an awful, agonizing death where you're publicly executed would be something glorious. It was a shameful way to die. In fact, ancient Near Eastern culture, much like even Middle Eastern culture today, was a shame-honor culture in which there was a a high premium that was placed upon honor. We hear this sometimes today with if you've ever heard of an honor killing. You know, uh, somebody who's from Middle Eastern culture, there's maybe a, a child, a son or a daughter who does something shameful and the father takes it in his own hands to take the life of that son or daughter. Why? Because they have brought shame to the family name. That's how serious they are about honor. Well, this was the culture in which Jesus lived. It was a a shame-honor culture. But here Jesus speaks of this hour not as an hour of shame, but as an hour of glory. An hour of honor. An hour in which there's going to be this glorious public display of triumph. We say, how so? Well, J.C. Ryle, I think, is helpful at this point. He says, do this. It's almost like he's paraphrasing paraphrasing Jesus' prayer. Do this in order that he may glorify you and your attributes. Do this that he may bring fresh glory to your holiness and justice and mercy and faithfulness and prove to the world that you are a just God, a holy God, a merciful God, a God who keeps his word. My vicarious death and my resurrection will prove this and bring you glory. You see, that's what's going on here. Jesus says, Father, my hour has come, the hour of my execution, the hour of my crucifixion. Glorify me so that you will be glorified. In other words, put me on display so that you can be put on display. Friends, how would we know just how loving God is were we not to see the extent to which He would display His love. That He would give His own Son. 
Romans 5, 8, for God demonstrates his own love towards us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. How would we know the extent of the love of the Lord Jesus himself? That how much he loves you, how much he loves sinners, in that he would willingly lay down his own life for us. How would we know how severe God is in His threats of judgment and wrath and hell were we not to see the extent to which He would punish sin, the extent to which the bounty which was on your head had to be taken by another And it's taken by Jesus on the cross. That He didn't spare His own Son, but delivered Him up for us all. That He would crush His own Son. That's how severe and unflinching is His justice and wrath and holiness that He had to punish His own Son so that you can be set free. How would we know How faithful God is. That after thousands of years of promises and pictures and shadows and types and all that we read from the pages of Genesis to the end of the book of Malachi, that God would be faithful. As the prophets of old waited and waited and longed for, as the priests of old and the sacrifices that they offered longed for and waited for that perfect sacrifice. As the kings of old, one come after another, that, that was a miserable failure. I mean, even the best of kings in the Old Testament failed miserably. Longing for and waiting for that forever king to sit on the throne of David. How would we know how faithful God is were we not to see Jesus publicly displayed upon the cross? You see, that's what makes it the hour of glory. This is how Jesus reflects the Father's glory and reflects all the glories of the eternal and unchanging God by showing how loving God is, how just God is, how faithful God is. And quite frankly, we can keep going on and on with a multiplicity of characteristics and glories and perfections of the Almighty God that are put on display at the cross. This is what Jesus was up to at the cross. Now this, this, my friends, is huge. Because again, we want this world to exist for our own personal happiness. I mean, that's what, you know, that's what we've been taught from childhood in this culture. It's all about you. It's about your feelings. It's about you. And this bends the arrow in the right direction. Says no, even our salvation, which is for us, which is for our good, for our eternal joy, for our eternal happiness, and the wonder and mystery of God, it's for the glory of Almighty God. It's not ultimately about you. 
It's about the glory of God. It's so that as we sang this morning, Hallelujah, Hallel, Hebrew, praise, Yah, Yahweh. It's all about the praise of Yahweh. Isn't this what we see in the hymn that the Apostle Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 1? Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us with all spiritual blessings in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus just as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless before Him. In love He predestined us to adoption as sons according to the kind intention of His will to the praise of the glory of His grace. And then he goes on to speak of the Son. In Him we have redemption through His blood. And how's that chorus end? To the praise of His glory. And then he talks about the Holy Spirit and His sealing work and those who have believed. And what does he end? What's the chorus? To the praise of His glory. Friend, in miniature, this is the story of the entire Bible. It's about the glory of the Almighty God through the salvation of sinners. It is the very reason for which the calendar exists. It is the very reason that in the timetable of God that, Je- that Jesus came. Friend, is your life aligned up with this clock? With this calendar? Because it's the Apostle Paul himself who said, in 1 Corinthians 10.31, And whatever you do, whether you eat or drink, make sure you pursue your own self-gratification. <laughs> and whatever you do, whether you eat or drink, do all to the glory of God. And the wondrous and glorious thing is the way in which God has designed this universe that our greatest joy and happiness is going to be in pursuing the glory of God. As evidenced with eating. It tastes good. But it's meant for His glory. Salvation is for my good. It's for my eternal happiness. It's so that the burden of hell that hangs over my head could be taken upon the back of Jesus but it's for His glory. My joy, His glory. Well, that was just point one. The first way in which Jesus is going to glorify God is through reflecting the Father's glory, but secondly, through the right to grant eternal life. Verse two, even, Jesus says, even as... This could be taken in a causal sense because you gave him authority over all flesh that to all whom you have given him he may give eternal life. This statement here that that this glory is revealed in the giving of Jesus authority over all flesh and his kingship and his authority and his sovereignty to distribute eternal life to every single person without exception. Is that what it says there? No. 
to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. That the Father has given a people to the Son. And the Son is entrusted as a representative of that people. To die on behalf of that people. To live a perfect life on behalf of that people. And because the mission would be accomplished, He would have that right, that authority to give eternal life to them. This idea of this given people is not anything new in the Gospel of John. In fact, it's John, the Apostle's term, uh, that is synonymous with the Apostle Paul's term of the elect or those whom he predestined. Uh, Listen to John chapter 6 and verse 37 and following. He says, all that the Father gives me will come to me. And the one who comes to me, I will certainly not cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but to do the will of him who sent me. This is the will of him who sent me, that of, of, that of all that he has given me, I lose nothing, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in Him will have eternal life, and I myself will raise Him up on the last day. So what we get a window into here in John 6 is that the Father gives a people to the Son, and the Son has come down from heaven to lay down his life on behalf of that people to make sure that that people has eternal life. And so when we fast forward to John chapter 17, Jesus is saying, all authority has been given to me so that I can give eternal life to all those whom the, the Father has given. We see this given phrase again in John 10, 29, the Father who has given them to me, speaking of the sheep, He is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of his hand. We see it also throughout John 17, over and over. In verse 6, I've manifested your name to the men whom you you gave me out of the world. In verse 9, Jesus says, I ask on their behalf, I do not ask on behalf of the world, but of those whom you have given me, for they are yours. And it's repeated throughout, over and over throughout in, in John 17. I won't, I won't uh, read all of them for you, but it's these given ones. And this, again, is part of the divine plan of redemption. Because there's, there's a very real sense in which Jesus is a second Adam. Adam was the representative of humanity in the Garden of Eden. And Jesus becomes the representative of the new humanity. Listen to Sinclair Ferguson here. He says, God created man in his image. What does an image do? It reflects, to reflect his glory. He made a garden for him to care for in Genesis 2. The garden expressed the glory of God, which is why there are echoes of it in the tabernacle and later in the garden city world of the New Jerusalem in Revelation 21-22. But while all creation was very good in Genesis 1-31, it was not yet all garden. 
Adam and presumably his family line with him was to extend this garden and to populate it until it reached the ends of the earth. To accomplish this task, they were given dominion or authority over all flesh. Scripture gives us hints that when this was accomplished, Adam, with all of his family, would bring this garden city world back to God as a love gift of their obedience and say, I have glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. But Adam never said that, did he? Adam never said to God, God... I have accomplished the work that you have given me to do. I have glorified your name. I have imaged you as I ought to. Those words Adam never said. And those words we could never say. Because we have fallen in Adam. And we deserve the eternal judgment of God. But God sends this second Adam, another representative who did image God the Father in a perfect way and was given authority over all flesh, dominion, and He gives eternal life to all those whom the Father has given Him. Again, this is important. This is important because your eternal security with Jesus, your eternal life, is not based upon anything in you. It's not based upon your goodness, your performance, how good of a Christian life you live. It's rooted and anchored in the eternal God. Will you say, it's because He loves me. And that would be true. But dare I say it's for something even more primary and first order than that. It's for His glory. In other words, because it's the glory of God that's at stake in your eternal salvation, you can enjoy the comforts of security. If God was to fumble you, to fumble you right before you cross the finish line and you lose your salvation, then one whom was given to the Father by the Son, did not make it. But God don't fumble. He has no turnovers. There's no change of possession. All that the Father gives to the Son will have eternal life. Forever life. And this glorifies the Father, the Son's right to give eternal life. But thirdly, not only the reflection of the glory, the right to give eternal life glorifies God, but also the relationship granted. Notice verse 3. In verse 3 it says, This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. In other words, 
Jesus here clarifies what is meant by eternal life because the eternal life is that which Jesus gives to all those whom the Father has given. What is this eternal life? Now, it certainly includes a quantity of life, namely eternal, a life that goes on forever and ever, world without end. But it's more than that because, as you know, people in hell go on forever and ever and ever world without end, but they don't have what the Bible calls eternal life. And so eternal life, it includes a a quantity of life, but it also includes a quality of life. A knowledge of the true and living God. A knowledge, a relationship with the true and living God to know Him. A.W. Pink says, What would bring more glory to the Father than that He should be known, trusted, loved, served by those whom the Son gave eternal life? Eternal life contains the essence of all blessing. This is the promise that He hath promised us eternal life. Spiritual or eternal life consists in knowing, living on, having communion with, and enjoying endless satisfaction in the triune God (coughs) through the one mediator. This is good. Good stuff. This eternal life that Jesus has the authority to give, it brings sinful, rebellious creatures into a reconciled, peaceful relationship with the true God in which they know Him. They know Him. They know the true God. Now, sometimes people read this and they choke on this or... Well, Jesus here must not be God because He speaks of the Father as the one true God. Except John the Apostle at the end of 1 John, he speaks of His Son, Jesus Christ. This is the true God and eternal life. Little children, guard yourself from idols. So, of course, Jesus refers to God the Father as the true God. Because what else would he refer to him as? He is the true God. As well as Jesus is the true God. As well as the Holy Spirit is the true God. They are of one essence, but distinct in persons. To have eternal life is to come into a relationship to know the true and living God. This is, this is huge. Because when one turns to Jesus, turns to the true and living God, it means a departure from idols. And our hearts are bent on idolatry. That's how we are born into this world. When the Apostle Paul describes this world, he he speaks of, in in Romans chapter 1, it says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. For since the creation of the world, His invisible attributes have clearly been seen. 
Did men bow down and worship the God who has revealed himself in creation? No. He goes on to say, for even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks, but became futile in their speculation, and their foolish heart was darkened, professing themselves to be wise, they became fools, and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man, of birds and four-footed animals and crawling creatures. Therefore God gave them over to the lusts of their heart, to impurity, so that their bodies would be dishonored among them. For they exchanged the truth of God for a lie, and worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. The story of man is to turn aside from worshiping the true and living God who's revealed in creation and redemption and to turn aside to worship the creation rather than the creator. And Jesus says eternal life is this, to know the true and living God. To know Him. And this, again, glorifies God. God wants to be known. He wants to be reveled in. He wants to be cherished. He wants to put Himself on display. And He does over and over in creation and redemption. I mean, think of Psalm 19. The heavens declare the glory of God and and the firmament, the work of His hands, day after day pours forth speech, night after night reveals knowledge. The creation screams out the glory of God. Redemption, the cross work of Christ, screams out the glory of God, that God would then allow you to enter into a relationship with Him, to know Him, to cherish Him, to love Him. And as is said in those wedding vows, forsaking all others, devoting myself only unto Him. Friend, do you know this God? Well, how do you grow in the knowledge of this God? Well, he's revealed himself. He's not squeamish about disclosing who he is in the scripture. He's, this is a pretty big book. It's pretty big, right? There's a lot here, and it's all about God. It is revelation. It is God revealing himself. Could you tell me about his attributes, his characteristics? Could you give me a basic understanding of what the Scripture reveals about Himself as the triune God? We say, Matt, that's knowing about God. That's not knowing God. But you have to at least know about Him to know Him, don't you? Right? If, if, if I said, tell me about your wife, and the, she, she's real nice. She, she's a real, real swell gal. And that's all you can tell me. How well do you know her? Are you guys married?
Knowing God is more than knowing about Him, but it's at least knowing about Him. Also, do you have eternal life? Do you, have you begun to enter into relationship with this true and living God? Or do you just know about him? You think of that classic written by the English Baptist Puritan John Bunyan. It's the most bought and sold book in the English language next to the Bible, Pilgrim's Progress. In the opening scene of that book, you remember Christian begins to feel weighed down about the, the burden of his sin and his guilt before a holy God. And, and he begins to plot and plan to leave the city of destruction to head on a journey to the celestial city. But there's some who are trying to convince him not to go, not to flee the city of destruction. And you remember there's that that scene where he puts his thumbs in his ears and he cries, Life! Life! Eternal life! And he runs out of the city of destruction on his way to the celestial city. Friend, do you know something of that? Something of that plugging of your ears as you run to Jesus and you follow Him and you say, I need Jesus. He's my only hope. I'm a guilty sinner. I have this burden of sin upon my back. And if I were to die today, I'd go to hell forever. I need Jesus and the forgiveness that He offers. And you trust in Him alone. And you begin that journey to the celestial city. If you've not begun that journey, you don't have to delay. Begin now. Turn to Jesus now. He's calling you. Come unto me, all you who are weary and heavy laden. I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. He says in John 7, 37, on that last day, the great day of the feast, if any man thirst, come unto me and drink. Are you thirsty? Do you recognize your need for Jesus, that he's your only hope for time and eternity to stand before the holy God of the universe? Go to Jesus. And for those who have drunk of Jesus, keep drinking of Him. Keep pressing in to a deeper and fuller knowledge of Him. That's eternal life. That's what you will do forever and ever. All, one of the most glorious doctrines in the Bible is what's called the incomprehensibility of God. And it's often misunderstood because of its incomprehensible word. It's like calling the clarity of Scripture the perspicuity of Scripture. The incomprehensibility of God tells us not that God cannot be comprehended, but that He cannot be exhaustively comprehended. That you cannot plumb the depths of who God is. 
the, the reason why that is so wonderful and so glorious, because that tells us something of the activity of the celestial city. That tells us something of the, the grand theme of the students of heaven, that we will study and grow deeper and fuller in our knowledge of God forever and ever for all eternity. I mean, do you ever have those moments where you learn something new about God and your heart is just swelling in thankfulness and worship of God and you're just thrilled? Wow, I didn't even know that about God. Isn't that amazing? Well, eternity will be like that forever and ever. Why? Because you'll never get to the bottom of God. Eternal life is to know the true and living God and to grow deeper and fuller for your eternal happiness. Jesus glorifies God by reflecting the Father's glory, by the right to give eternal life, by the relationship that He grants, namely knowing God. It was the Scottish reformer John Knox he began his Christian life in a castle that was under siege. Us folks in 2022, when we hear of a castle, we think of a nice palace with a princess and dancing all around. But castles were fortresses. They stored ammo. And that's how John Knox began his Christian life. And you know what? In, in the midst of that castle, as, as the, the, the forces of the Roman Catholic Church and the, the Scottish and the French armies were pummeling the castle with their cannons, the people in the castle said, can you teach us the Gospel of John? And so John Knox began teaching them the Gospel of John. Well, years later, after in the, in the wonder of God's grace, the Protestant Reformation took root in that great land of Scotland. John Knox was on his deathbed. You know what he said to those people around him as he was breathing his last breath? He said, read to me John 17. He says, for that's where I first laid my anchor. John Knox was converted reading John 17. And it was the heartbeat of Christ that he wanted to listen to as he would go to meet his Savior. Friends, as we listen to the heartbeat of Jesus and his passion for the glory of God, may that also help us to synchronize our hearts with his heart. Let's pray.